0: Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you, so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends, today we contemplate a story. It's called If sheer openness had a tongue, who would have it? We like to tell. We also like to show. Sometimes we tell by showing. Sometimes we show by telling. Writers are supposed to show, but they also tell. Perhaps we could leap beyond showing and telling. Maybe we can just evoke, or even Conjure. Let me show you something from the hologram of my mind, and we can find out what it evokes. Maybe it will conjure as well, and then we might get a taste of real magic. It was the first day of school for me, first grade. I had transferred in during kindergarten the year before, and I had no idea what to do on that first day of school. You see, the kindergarten classes were segregated from the rest of the school, so I didn't know where first graders should go. This only dawned on me when I stepped off the bus that morning. Zoe Pappas, a nurturing 12-year-old girl, one of my earliest crushes and still strongly present in my anima, she sensed my confusion and kindly escorted me down the grand hallways of shiny soft pink tiles and glittering granite floors. I remember the vague smell of lemon in the air from the floor cleaner used by the janitor, the scent distracting me from the far more pleasant aroma of a mysterious perfume Zoe wore. That perfume haunted me. Zoe was like a gateway to life and love, though I never had anything more than a relationship of awe toward her. My mother and stepfather separated, and I was forced to move away before I could become old enough to try and get to know Zoe as a person. Being so much older, she remained at a distance. But that perfume... After the first day of school, I would sometimes try to find Zoe Papas. Maybe on a day I felt a little lonely. When we all got let out of school, I would look for her and try to walk close to her so I could take in that fragrance. I felt far too shy to ask her about it. I felt happy enough to simply enjoy it. Years later... THE EFFECT OF THAT PERFUME IN MY SOUL LED ME TO READ THEOPHRASTUS. HE WAS A STUDENT OF ARISTOTLE, THE LATTER PERHAPS MY LEAST FAVORITE OF GREEK PHILOSOPHERS. ARISTOTLE GAVE THEOPHRASTUS HIS NAME. IT MEANS SOMETHING LIKE DIVINE SPEECH. I FIND THAT FUNNY, SINCE ARISTOTLE SEEMS CURSED WITH PRECISELY THE OPPOSITE. HE MAY HAVE HAD A SHARP MIND, but he spoke in the most boring phrases. Aristotle started a school associated with the Temple of Apollo Lysias, which means Temple of Apollo the Wolf God. That's the way I prefer to think of Apollo, as the Wolf God, rather than the God of reason, whatever that has come to mean in the dominant culture. The Temple of Apollo Lysias was referred to as the Lyceum and philosophers started using it as a place for debate and dialogue. Little packs of wisdom wolves trying to get their souls straight. Aristotle sort of took over the space even though he was more sheep than wolf and he passed the school to Theophrastus who grew it to over 2,000 students. I wanted to emulate that divine talker. I loved some of the ways he differed from Aristotle. One of the best had to do with animals, non-human animals, that is. Unlike Aristotle, Theophrastus seems to have looked at non-human animals as far more like humans than many philosophers have allowed. He recognized that they can think, and Aristotle didn't really accept that. I pictured Theophrastus becoming an extremely interesting old man. At 85, shortly before he died, he supposedly said, We die just when we are beginning to live. When I read that, I wished hard that I would learn how to live as swiftly as possible. I doubt I've gotten very far ahead of the divine talker. I discovered these things because of Zoe Pappas. Her unique fragrance prompted me to look into the history of perfume in Greece. It felt inspiring to read about the sense of sacredness some Greeks had regarding perfumes. They offered powdered and unguent perfumes to the gods with a Sense that things which smell so heavenly must surely have come from the divine. It was like a profound recognition of and reverence for a wondrous gift, and an offering back of that gift in a sacred circle, a magical loop of mutuality, gratitude, and awe. Hippocrates, famous physician, endorsed the healing powers of perfumes, including the use of them as incense and as space purifiers. Basically, the Greeks had, by the time of Hippocrates, embraced a rather scientific form of aromatherapy, in addition to deeply appreciating perfumes of various kinds for their beauty and their function as an adornment of the body and a blessing for the mind. Reading about Hippocrates then led me to Theophrastus. Theophrastus was a philosopher, but a philosopher in the most robust sense includes what we now narrowly think of as science. Theophrastus was, in some sense, the father of botany as we know it in the dominant culture. He joined countless unnamed women in his quest for knowledge about plants and I love that he seemed to know not only how to recognize, but also how to gather and use wild plants. But he offered no insight into whatever perfume Zoe Papas wore. Even though memory can fool us, I have come to suspect it contained ambergris. That's a scent too unique to confuse, and I believe Zoe's grandmother might have concocted it. It makes sense that a mystery of the ocean seduced my youthful soul. A mystery of the ocean blended by the skill and insight of a woman of rural Greece and worn by someone who must have evoked archetypal patterns in my soul. Theophrastus suggested several things about smells that I still think about now and then. He said that when we add fragrance... We do so in order to improve something. He talks specifically about improving the taste of food. Haven't we all noticed how the scent of a lover activates something like a hunger in the soul? And yet I thought of Zoe Pappas as perfect, and I would surely have thought the perfume only revealed her perfection rather than improving her. Maybe we need that clarity. Maybe this is part of why Theophrastus said, we die just when we are beginning to live. The perfection of life remains lost on us, and we need to go through ceremonies and rituals laden with sacred smoke. We need to be bathed and anointed. We need to dance close to someone with an intoxicating fragrance then if we can open our eyes we may catch a glimpse of the great perfection of all things. Theophrastus also acknowledged that every being has a unique scent but that we humans are by and large too dull to notice. Every moment is actually too unique for us to fully notice. Maybe that's why the Sufi poets talk about fragrance. They are mystical poets of the soul's perfume, the scent of the divine. Given the powerful effect of smell on memory, maybe smell helps us to remember what we are, to remember the divine presence But I've drifted on the updrafts of Zoe's perfume for long enough. All of these details matter. That's how a hologram works. Every part contains the whole. And the whole contains every part. It's all interwoven. And I'm showing you how I might become an interesting old man one day. Zoe walked me down those confusing hallways, and I remember how they looked and smelled. The same hallways looked minuscule when, as many have, I happened to wander into them years later as a full-grown man, physically full-grown anyway. It seemed, during that return, that the child version of me had gone to school in Lilliput. But on that first day of school... I was among the Nagians. Zoe knew where she was going, and this accentuated my awareness that I did not. She held my hand tenderly, but walked with a clear sense of direction, the way a trainer leads a horse out of the stable. My extremities still tend toward coolness, whether I'm nervous or not, and Her hand felt reassuringly warm as we walked. We went up a ramp, turned to the left, and walked down the hallway to the furthest door on the right. The names of students were printed on a list, taped to the wall outside the door. Zoe, in her first-day-of-school outfit, of which she must have been very proud, scanned the list and found my name. Oh, she said, this is it. You're in Mrs. Canikaredi's class. You'll like her. She's very nice. She was my teacher, too. My little boy heart perked up at those words. The same teacher as Zoe Pappas? What a delight. Surely we could be married one day. Zoe smiled and said her good-bye, sending me into the room. I can't tell you what happened Next. Can't show you either. This is just backstory. What we have to get to is Manos kafatos. Did I see Manos kafatos that first day of school? Surely we all must have. But we forget so much, perhaps from not enough telling. As much telling as we do, we never tell it all, nor do we tell the best things in the best ways. We've lost ourselves. We've let literacy take us out of the living web of speech and thus forgot how to listen and tell, how to evoke and orient how to conjure through the sound of the voice the melodic mind and the sensitive body that feels the vibrations of mantras beaming out of beings high and low, out of rocks, rivers, and trees, out of mountains, grasses, and seas, pronouncements rooted in placeness, words that weave us into being, the magic of imagination coming alive. Even so, even in our current state of living, how we tell and what we tell dodges, burns, and fixes the holographic film of the mind over and over again. Memory always works in a living way, and our only real knowledge is living knowing dancing in spirals, spirals that bind or spirals that free. Here's what anyone at all can remember of manos cofatos, no matter their manner of speaking or living. Long-sleeve flannels or cotton t-shirts, or both, sneakers or duck boots, jeans but never pants or shorts, and a face like burning embers. Why the red face, Manoscafatos? Sheer social terror. In winter we could have gathered around that face to warm our hands during snowball fights. And how long did it take for him to speak? Didn't it take until the first blusters of winter? Wasn't there snow on the ground? Manoscafatos sat in the back, as did I, but on the far left of the room. I sat far right. First grade. Is this why even now I have preferred the back row in any classroom setting? Mrs. Kanakaredis started on Manos' side of the room each time we had show and tell. With whom did she begin? Was it with Thalia Kanakaris, the first crush of my Childhood other than Wonder Woman, and Zoe Pompas, of course. And the Virgin Mary, just kidding, sort of. Ours is not to reason with the id, but to work with it. Thalia kanakaris She would never let me sit next to her on the bus. Perhaps this explains the inability to clearly recall her presence in the class. Oh, the heart, the heart and the hologram. The things we tell, the things we show, even to ourselves, especially to ourselves, I can still see her little girl knees pushing against the seat of the bus, barring me entry to the open space next to her, like a bear blocking entrance to an alluring cave. What would I have said if she would have let me sit next to her? Probably nothing. Maybe I had a joke or two up my sleeve, or some other intimate yet childly innocent show-and-tell seduction. Each time we had show-and-tell, Mrs. Kanakaredis would invite us one by one to show or to tell. When she came to Manoscafatos, she would ask quite gently, Manoscafatos, would you like to share something with the class? Manos's big round face would burst into flames, a roaring fire from under the skin, his complexion turning him into a child of the light-bringer. He made no eye contact, not with Mrs. Kanekareris, not with anyone. He looked down, burning, and shook his head firmly. No way. I can still feel that no way, feel it from his hot face and his tense little body. No way would Manuscafato speak out loud, not even from his seat. Imagine how much worse the suggestion to go to the front of the room and speak to everyone present. He would surely have chosen the torments of hell before choosing to speak in front of the class to suffer even the question rattled his little boy's soul as anyone could plainly see. How often did we have show and tell? Was it once a week? Twice a week? Not daily. At least once a week, I should think. But how many shows or tells have left their mark on the hologram of my animal mind? How many times did Manos Kafatos, psyche-reeling, turn his face apple-red, look down in awkward silence, and shake his head vigorously? How many times have we all done what amounts to the same thing, when the voice of life itself asked us to show or to tell? And, of course, life couldn't give a damn about the things we get addicted to showing and telling. How easy to show off a new car or tell everyone about the boss man's latest bastardry. Life instead asks us to show love and compassion or to tell a difficult truth, to shine wisdom in a dark place, to show calmness in the face of a storm to navigate in nakedness, steer bravely and beautifully through something tragic or unknown? Do our heads shake in silence at such moments, saying, No way! Do our souls shake in meekness and self-doubt? Maybe you think you know what I will tell you here, maybe even unconsciously, you think you know what I want to show you. But can any of us see it? Who will see it? You may say, I will see it, but can you show me who that is? One day, Mrs. Kanakaredes said, Manos kafatos. do you have anything you would like to share with the class? May the gods and goddesses smile on every last one of us. May the sisters of mercy bless us all as they unfold and enfold our lives in the hologram of the cosmos. I tell you this in a state of ecstasy. Manos Kafatos stood up, and he bloody well walked to the front of that classroom. Each of us present that day must have had our eyes sparked, jaws stuck, breath, still. Still. It is in still water that we can best see our own reflection, or as my Irish brother Yeats put it, when we make ourselves into still water, all beings, all beings can see themselves clearly, can live and love with a heightened lucidity and even a compassionate fierceness and a wild wisdom because of our sacred calm. But I still wonder what we saw that day. Manoscafatos had remained silent for weeks on end. We all assumed he could speak. Surely Mrs. Kanakaredes would know if he couldn't actually speak, so he could speak, but chose not to. What a thing! And what kind of thing could undo that? What could possibly free Manus Kofatos from his silence? Something of decisive importance, no doubt. Had aliens landed in this boy's yard? Would Manos Kofatos now tell us he had seen aliens? If not aliens, then how about astronauts, would he say that astronauts had landed in his yard? Would he tell us he had gotten a phone call from the president? Had he played catch with a famous athlete? What on earth would Manos Kofatos tell us? Would he show us something? A diamond dug up from the garden? a priceless artifact from ancient Greece. What could douse the fires of his timid psyche? What could undo those knots? You may accuse me of belaboring a point, running the story aground in needless suspense, but we need to make space in the soul for spiritual sparks to shed light, for their fire to burn away our veils of ignorance. I'm a philosophical type. Believe me when I tell you. Make me a cup of tea someday and I'll even show you. You can tell me your problems, but you'll show most of it in your walk, in the connection you make when you shake my hand, in the way you settle into your seat, in the stability of your awareness and in the micro-expressions on your face as we begin to converse. Your face could launch a thousand ships of thought in the mind, But we philosophical types hold a steady course to Ithaca. And what of those times when we sit in silence with someone, knowing, feeling keenly that we have nothing to say? The silence has no threads of connection laced through it, not like the invisible silent threads of a metaphysical netting that holds all of creation together. We find ourselves caught up in something, but not the diamond net of Indra, just a zirconium net of ego. We have nothing to say or want to say nothing, and by this we show it all, don't we? Manos Kofatos showed something, too. From the moment he stood up, his face had something mythical in it, mystical even. But we would have to take the full journey with him to find out about his Ithaca. His problem was known to all. What could resolve it? We might ask, what could undo his silence? But we might also ask, what could undo our own chatter? What could undo fear or craving? What could undo mindlessness and obstructions? Quietly, and with a roguish angelic smile, Manos Manoscafatos rose from his desk and walked to the front of the classroom. He took that walk like a stroll in the garden. He stood in the front of the classroom and looked at us. We waited. "'He said, "'Yesterday, when I got home from school, my dog jumped on me.' "'As he said this, he gestured with his hands, indicating clearly "'that the dog had landed his paws on either side of Manos Kafatos's heart. "'I could picture it, that dog jumping, leaping up in exuberance "'to greet his little boy companion.' a vibrant, ingenuous joy. Manos Kafatos's smile bloomed, his face becoming a bright red flower in the sky. He paused a moment, that smile filling the room, and then he returned to his seat. What did we think? What went through our minds, our bodies, our hearts and holograms? How many of us thought this was the stupidest thing we had ever heard? People brought fancy toys to show, bounded to the front of the room with outlandish tales to tell. One yearned for toys like those to play with, one longed for more interesting life, a life filled with expensive playthings and remarkable happenings. In the midst of this, and after weeks and weeks of abject silence, Manos Kofatos announced to us that he had gone home and his dog had jumped on him. He announced it like a Zen monk resolving a case of spiritual common law. What is the sound of one hand clapping? My dog jumped on me. Does a dog have Buddha nature? Yes, in fact he does, and it sounds like this. Your home! Of all the shows and tells I heard in all my years of school, how many do I recall? Not a single one, except this one. With effort, I might rustle up one of my own shows or tells, but without much clarity. How about those of my friend Tassos? wading into the hologram of the heart-mind, something might emerge fuzzy and indistinct. But a concrete moment, a specific phrase, nary a one, except this. My dog jumped on me. At what point do we become too jaded to notice the profundity of this expression? At what point do we pass by the sweetness of this offering, Manos Kafatos's life, hanging before us as a ripened fruit? Did it ripen of its own accord? Do you imagine that he ripened it, whatever that could mean? Imagine that he went home that day, the day before, show and tell, determined to discover something to show or to tell. Or imagine he went home thinking nothing at all of the matter. Or imagine he went home pained to the bone and at a loss as to how to ease that pain, how to bring calm to his crawling skin, his burning flesh, his aching marrow. Perhaps... He had given up completely. He went home, having given up. There was nothing to worry over because he couldn't solve the problem. Then suddenly a dog jumping on him. The cosmos became canine, an intimate friend leaping in joy. Manoscafatos no longer had a body or a mind. Manoscafatos had no tongue to worry over no ears to hear his name called, no self-consciousness to light his face on fire. Everything dropped away, and it was just this, just a heart-mind-body world leaping, paws-pressing, tail-wagging, mouth-smiling, love and friendship, dancing energetically, intimate and immediate. How could anything rival such a marvel? We long to speak and we sit in stony silence. We speak up and we put our own foot in our mouth. We want to show love, give love, experience love, talk about the love we feel. Love passes away, as all things do. Our beloved puppy grows into a dog, and then he gets old. He walks stiffly. We watch him die. Meanwhile, the cockroaches we detest never shrink in number. You live in New York City, and when you open your box of noodles to make a pasta dish, you first check to see how many cockroaches you have in it. Sometimes the loudest sound. The most profound communication is silence itself. But ask yourself, doesn't the most profound communication in words or sounds itself arise out of silence as an expression of silence? Just as the Gita tells us that sagehood means seeing the stillness in every movement and the movement in every stillness, mustn't we hear, even feel, the silence in every sound and the sound in every silence? Words don't express sounds. They express the silence beneath all sound, the special silence which is itself not the opposite of sound. It's just this. If you have reflections, comments, suggestions, or questions about today's contemplation, please send them in through dangerouswisdom.org. You might be able to bring some of them into a future contemplation. Now this story is, as sometimes people ask me about the stories that I share, it's uh, certainly based in experience, and also it's based in imagination. But there's something very telling about the elements in the little holographic image we considered here, and if you think carefully, you'll notice some of the subtle ways they're woven together. Helps if you have a little bit of exposure to the wisdom traditions, but there's enough in the story itself to nourish some good, creative thoughts and insights. Well, until next time, friends, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you That your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of it.